Well, good morning. We've got 10 more minutes of morning. And uh, welcome to Palm Sunday, which is um, the start of Holy Week. It's being celebrated all around the world. It's tied to the Jewish festival of Passover. And it leads us all the way through to Good Friday, where Christ goes to the cross, which is good not because of the sacrifice, but because of the result of the sacrifice. And it ends with Easter and us giving thanks, and then continues on into Pentecost. But today is Palm Sunday. So we're talking about Palm Sunday in the next four days that follow up through Thursday. My name is Mark Wall. I'm on staff here. I'm the community pastor. And it's my honor and privilege to talk to you all. So one of the things about this Holy Week, or Palm Sunday, that started with Palm Sunday, is this is a bookend of, or this is the bookend of Jesus' ministry. That all the things and all of, that he has been doing for the three years coming up to this have been leading to a lot of these moments. Another just kind of side fact is we have the four Gospels that weave between each other, that, that the different Gospel authors pick different things to focus on. And as, you know, um, and as we're going through the Gospels, there's very few things that all four focus on. And Palm Sunday and, there, um, and Jesus entering into Jerusalem in celebration is only the fifth time that all four Gospels talk about it. And they talk about six or seven more times during Holy Week. There's a lot of alignment during this period. And the only reason I bring that up is it, I think it's an emphasis There's some really important things happening. So Palm Sunday, before we enter into Jesus coming in and what that looked like, I wanted to kind of give some context so we can understand what was going on. So, um, actually, I'm going to back up for a second. So one of the things is, is we can look at what Jesus came to do. And we can also look at how Jesus did it. That, that um, Jesus, as he walked the earth, set aside his divine powers so that everything he did, every miracle he performed was through the power of the Holy Spirit, that he walked fully human like we did. So he's an example of how we can engage in the world, how we can interact in the world. And the Jews had a lot of expectations on what he was coming to do as the Messiah. And there were many that already recognized and believed he was the Messiah. And what a lot of them didn't understand is that he came for some really specific reasons, not just for the nation of Israel. That, we, that as we were doing communion day, we talked about sin, when another term of sin is break broken relationship. That people were walking in broken relationship with God. So this is got part of God's plan to restore that relationship, to make that relationship whole, whole. And one of the ways that Jesus did it is first he was surrendered, that he was in a place of humility that what was going on with other people was more important for him than what was going on within himself. That he abided with God. That it was important for him to connect with God, that he was obedient to what God had called him to do and was calling him to do. And that the result of those two things, that in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus' lifestyle was actually a form of worship. That everything he was doing, everything he was saying, Everything he was leading from were a form of worship.
Now, before Palm Sunday, Jesus is come, has been out in the nation of Israel. He comes back to Bethany just before um, Palm Sunday, getting in preparation for the Passover festivals and the things that were happening. And he's in Bethany, and he has friends there. There's Mary and Martha and Simon and, and Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And it's interesting because Lazarus, even though he was raised from the dead, his testimony was so impactful that the Pharisees were trying to find Lazarus and kill Lazarus. Because when people hear what people did through Lazarus, they were starting to leave the temple and follow Jesus. There was an excitement building in the air. And the Pharisees were looking to, to find a way to arrest Jesus, but the people were eager to see him and greet him. And so we have the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And, there's, and when we say triumphal entry, that isn't unique to what Jesus did. It's something that a conquering king would do when he returned. That, so if you, to get a flavor for what usually happened, that, it, that the conquering king who returned and across cultures, not just Jewish culture, but Roman culture, Greek culture. And he would be escorted by the citizens of the town. He'd have his army with him and have all of the things, have the plunder and things like that. And it was a chance to say, look what I have done. I have overcome the enemy and I'm returning in victory. And they'd be singing songs of praise and acclamation. Nowadays, we do the ticker tape parade. Actually, we don't really do those as much anymore, but... When the astronauts landed, they did. And one that after escorting, being escorted into the city, this returning conqueror would go to whatever the prominent temple was in that city. And he would make a sacrifice to the gods for a couple of reasons. He wanted to honor the gods, and he wanted everybody to know that his victory was in association because gods had touched him, and that's why he was victorious that they believed that there was supernatural things that occurred. So across religions, across culture, there were these triumphal entries. So it's kind of a see what I have done. I have God's favor, so you should recognize that in me. And we see other kinds of entries. When, when David wanted to bring the ark up into, up into the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem on the second time, they did that. In fact, they did sacrifices every six steps because the first time they tried to bring it up, it didn't work so well. <laughs> so they wanted, they wanted to be sure to giving glory to God, what they did, but the point was to get that, that in, and there was, there was a lot of ceremony, and he was dancing before it. So now, in this image of what's happening on Palm Sunday, if we put ourselves there, there's all the people standing around. And they've, a lot of them have been waiting and wondering, is Jesus going to come? Because this is one of the three major one of the three major holidays where people come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. And they usually try to make one of them a year, one of the three. So Jerusalem's packed out. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus has been out healing and he's coming back and they're, and they're anticipating him and many think of him or believe he is the Messiah. So the Messiah has come back. So they're throwing cloaks. They're grabbing their coats and they're throwing them on the ground. And why the cloaks? What's up with that? Well, well one is, is the cloaks were an expression of joy. But we also see that um, Jehu, who was anointed by Elisha to be king when Ahaz and Jezebel were ruling, Elisha came up to, to Jehu and he anointed him for the purpose of killing 
Jezebel and Ahaz and reestablishing a reign that honored God. And they threw their cloaks down in front. So it wasn't just joy, but it was also an act of submission. It's an act of proclaiming this is the king. And it's, it's, so it's an honor and respect. It's saying this is the person who's in charge, whose God has elected, and we're giving him honor. And then there's the palm branches, which isn't a surprise because we do call it Palm Sunday. And what's, what is the, the symbology of the, of the palm trees? Or the, excuse me, the palm branches? Well, in general, they symbolize goodness, well-being, grandeur, steadfastness, victory. They're also tokens of joy and they're tokens of triumph. So they'd be waved in, in, in events. So people are throwing cloaks down and they have the palm branches. In fact, the Feast of Booths is coming up following Passover, and they'd use palm branches amidst that. And the Feast of Booths was to recognize how God took them out of Egypt and, and guided them. And they'd use palm branches as a remembrance of that. And there's a sect uh, of, of the Jews called the Maccabeans, and they had defeated the Greeks in victory. And you know what they had done? They'd wave palm branches. So there's this sense of victory. There's a sense the king is coming. And in the midst of this, um, in the midst of this, we see that, that, that there's a, um, that Jesus is coming on a colt. And he's actually sent his disciples on ahead to get the colt. There's a whole story behind that. In fact, it's, it's, it's to fulfill one of the prophecies from Zechariah 9.9 where it says, say to the sons and daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That this is one of the prophecies to announce the returning of the Messiah. So let's go to Mark 11, 7 through 10, and we see this procession. And they they, being the disciples, brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread out their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches or palm branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It was a huge event. Everybody was super excited. But one of the things I want to recognize is what they were looking for. Because the word Hosanna itself, literally translated, is save us now. They were looking for their Savior to save them now. They were looking for freedom from Rome. They wanted Christ. They wanted Jesus to destroy Roman leadership right there. Destroy our captors. Establish your earthy kingdom right now. Let us rule for your name's sake. We, we would have peace because we would dominate. God's kingdom would dominate over Rome and the kingdoms that come against. We would have prosperity because we would dominate over those who were against us. That, that the people there were looking to see what Jesus could do for them. That's where their hearts were at. And I'm not saying it's a wrong thing, but that's all they understood. They couldn't understand what his true purpose was. In fact, the disciples who'd been walking with him for three years didn't understand what he was about. 
And if we look at scripture, he actually told them pretty plainly. So as they're doing this, as they're waving their branches, as they're laying down cokes, as they're calling and, and using Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The Pharisees confront Jesus. And in Luke 19, 39 through 40, they say, um, and some of the Pharisees of the crowd say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So they're recognizing he has authority, but the authority to consider himself the Messiah, they're saying is too much. Don't let him treat you like the Messiah. And he answers, I tell you, if these, meaning the people there were silent, the very stones would cry out. They were giving honor and glory to Jesus for what he was to do. And what they wanted Jesus to do is something very different than he was going to do, but he would still do that honor and that glory. So this kind of raises the question, what was Jesus' expectation when he entered? What was Jesus hoping to do? And I think he started in Luke 4 with his proclamation over why he came. That he's now there, this is that book, and he's fulfilling that purpose. That he, he would, had been proclaiming that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that he was going to preach good news to the poor. That he, would, that he had with him the gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation. Not domination, not authority, but forgiveness and reconciliation. He'd been preaching again and again that the kingdom is at hand. And that's really specific terminology. It doesn't mean it's coming. It doesn't mean it's distant. It doesn't mean it's almost there. That when he said the kingdom is at hand, he's saying the kingdom is right here, right now. That when he told the disciples to preach that thy will be done, Lord, in heaven, on earth, as it is on heaven, that Jesus was bringing that will with him because of the attitude he had. That he was bringing liberty to the captives that all men and women who were separated from relationships with God and with each other, that he'd come to heal that. Recovery for the sight of the blind, both literal and metaphorical, that those who couldn't see what was going on could, and those who couldn't see would actually have sight. And that he was in liberty for the oppressed, but not just for the Jews, for the Romans too. <laughs> that it was liberty for the oppressed, whether they be Jewish or Gentile in the return of the Lord's favor, that in effect that he's saying that the relationship with God that has been separated and broken because of sin was going to be reestablished and connection and communion with God will be possible for all, not just for some, not just for elect. This is a pretty big thing. This is something worthwhile of giving cheer for. Even if they didn't understand why Jesus was coming, he deserved it. And what's interesting is we see in Luke 19, 41 through 44, as it continues, his response, though, was to weep. And as he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
he's being very prophetic as he says this because he sees what's to come. That within 40 years, Rome will get tired of the rebellion in Jerusalem. And a general Titus will circle with a trench around the city. And then he'll quickly build a wall around that so no one within Jerusalem can leave. And then his troops will go in and they will slay everyone. And they will, they will destroy everything, dig up everything. That the only thing remaining of Jerusalem when he was done was three towers that they chose to leave erect. But they tore down the temple. They tore down all the buildings. They tore down the outer walls. That the Jerusalem that exists today was is built on the ruins of what was done in that moment. And I think why Jesus was weeping is he was saying that your attitude of wanting me to come to, 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 to turn over, the, to come and come against Rome isn't why I'm here. That they didn't see that. They didn't hear it. That he was coming to set them free from a bigger captivity but they were so focused on overturning Rome that the end result would be their own destruction because they didn't understand why they really came. Jesus goes home that night. Now Palm Sunday's over, but I'm not done. <laughs> and Monday morning the sun comes up and Jesus returns into the city. And he comes into the temple for the second time and he cleanses it. And we see this in Matthew 21, 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Why is he so upset about these money changers? Well, the way the temple was constructed, there's the holy place, there was the inner courts, and there was the outermost courts. And this was the place, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to come worship God, you were allowed into that place because you weren't purified to go beyond there. And often the women weren't allowed to go beyond there. But it was the place for you to come to worship God. Well, the city was crowded, so they decided to set up the money changers there to exchange money from all the different countries. And you could buy your pigeons or your lambs for sacrifice. That it had become a place of commerce that was supposed to be reserved for worship. He'd come three years early at the start of his ministry, and he'd done the same thing. But they'd ignored him, and they were still doing that same thing. It had become, the outer courts, instead of being a place for worship, were a place for commerce. So he continues. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame that were there came to the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, they were being thankful. The priests were indignant, and they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? For the next three days, he continued preaching in the temple. For the next three days, he kept speaking parable after parable. And he wept for the city again. And he, he gave prophecies of what was going to come. And most of it is very difficult and very hard. So, for example, he gives the parable of the two sons. 
one who says they'll do a thing and doesn't do it, and one who says they won't but does. And then he ends it with, have you not read the scripture? Oh, wrong one, sorry. Truly, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you, which was very popular with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. But he's saying the scourge of society, the people that you disdain and spit upon, they're going to go to the kingdom first, but not you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, that being John the Baptist, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him, that him being John the Baptist. And he tells the parable of the tenants where the tenants in this landowner's field are being rebellious. And in the end, he sends his son and they kill his son. And he says, have you not read the scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the Pharisees were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him again because of the crowds and went away, but they were still seeking to arrest him. He makes one and only one comment about the Romans. When the Pharisees or the scribes come to him, they try to trick him, saying, you know, should we pay taxes? And his response is, render the things of Caesar's unto Caesar. And as he stands in the temple and the things of God, give them to God. And he has the seven woes over the Pharisees and, and just one piece of it. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow others who would go enter in that he's been very provocative, not hope-filled. He's been interacting with, with most of these people. And as he's, as he's sitting there, as he's, he's preaching day after day, there's something unique that happens on one of the days. As he's sitting across from the temple treasury, and we, we can pick that up in Mark 12, 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite of the treasury, and watch the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. So just to paint this picture a little fuller, he's been preaching, he's taking a break, he's in front of the, and these coffers are on the walls, or these big coffers with slots in them that they can put the money in, and he's sitting watching. And, and the disciples are a little bit away, he's kind of by himself, and the, the rich people come in with their big gold coins and plunk, makes a nice noise when it drops in and everybody knows they've given a lot. And then this one widow comes up and she has two little nits. They don't even, they just barely add to a penny and she drops those in. Tink, tink. You can probably see people looking at her askance or even ignoring her and Jesus goes, wait, did you see that? Did you see what just happened? I finally found one who believed in sacrificial giving. Out of all the people adoring me, I found one. He calls the disciples to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of the contributions in the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance. 
And she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had and all she had to live on. She was the only person that he gives witness to that actually was living from a place of sacrificial love and sacrificial giving. And one thing that often happens when a new victor comes in is they, I talked about they'd go to a temple when they entered. Jesus didn't go to the temple and make a sacrifice. He went and he wept over the city. That's because Jesus wouldn't go to the temple and make a sacrifice. That Friday, he would end up himself being the sacrifice on a hill outside of town in Golgotha. That his attitude what he was trying to show about sacrificial love, he was willing to do it. And he explained this attitude to the disciples in the high upper room on Thursday night during the Passover feast. And we see that in John 15, 12 through 14. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for their friends. You're my friends if you do as I command you. It's interesting in a couple ways. One is this commandment didn't exist in scripture. The commandment to love one another as our neighbor, that was there, back there in Leviticus. To love God with all your heart and soul and mind is in Deuteronomy. And upon that, the Ten Commandments are all built around those two ideas of loving God holy and loving our neighbors in an egalitarian way. But he gave a new command. He said, this is my command, to love each other the way I love you. And he knew he was going to the cross, and they still didn't understand. But that's the level of sacrificial love he was trying to explain because out of that comes the ability to forgive those we don't think we can forgive, to reconcile with those we don't think we can reconcile with. And there's big examples of this that we can engage in, and there's little examples. I'm going to start with a littler one that happened for Kristen and I. Um, her sister Gretchen has a really close friend, and we barely know her. But she had been um, estranged from her father since her teenage years. In fact, she didn't know her father was living in Eugene until he was in the hospital on his deathbed. And as soon as she learned about that, she flew across the country to come home, to, or not to come home, but to come to Eugene to reconcile with him. And Gretchen let us know she was coming, and so we put her up at our house. And as we prayed, um, she, as we prayed, as Kristen and I prayed, we realized that we felt like God wanted to help us, wanted us to help her with some of the cost of her journey that was so unexpected. It was a small sacrifice to bring somebody into her house. It was a small sacrifice to help her defray some of the expenses which she hadn't planned on just for the purpose of being able to forgive and reconcile herself with her father she hadn't seen in over 40 years. And then there's bigger ones. A friend of mine and told me something his dad had done, and, and it stuck with me on what sacrificial love looks like, about what it means to lay down your life. That um, he was near retirement, and one of his best friends got really ill. I believe it was a cancer. But his friend lived alone. He didn't have anybody to take care of him. So her father quit his job early. 
and spent the next two years bringing his friend into their house and taking care of him and watching over him until he passed. That he, he gave up two prime years of his life. He gave up the income and he gave up the time to just love a friend really well who didn't have anybody else to love on him. That that's what sacrificial love looks like when we put somebody else in front of ourselves. And so Jesus isn't saying, let me say, say this differently. Like with the Holy Spirit in us because of what he has done, the question shouldn't be, God, what can you do for us? But if we're going to follow the model of Jesus, it should be what can we do for others? Because he is within us. He's with us. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And he can lead us to go on and do for others. That he's inviting into this, into this place of sacrificial living, of sacrificial love. You know, um, Rachel and, and um, Jamie, thank you. We're talking about going to Poland. Sacrificial loving is not unique to the Christian way of life. Or other people do it. And, and when we see it, we recognize it because it's noble and it's good and it's honorable. And there's a lot of people sacrificing their time and themselves. They had one story of somebody who had given up their house so somebody could move into it and they moved in with their in-laws. But there's people that are doing that right now. But what sets apart the body of believers is it's not just some of us doing it, it's that we're called to do that together. We're called to do that in mass. That, that the friend who has very difficult way of looking at life than I do, that if somebody knows both of us, they know there's reasons for us not to love each other, but yet they see us loving each other. Or they see, they see denominations, they see Baptists and Pentecostals and Catholics and, and Presbyterians and Lutherans come together to serve and love the city and they go, they love each other when they shouldn't. And that's what sets us apart. And when we do that, it actually gives glory to God. And it gives people a reason to believe that maybe they are believing in somebody that maybe God did send Jesus because they're living in a way that's contrary to human nature. They're living in a way that's different. So Lord, I just ask you bless us with the ability to understand your sacrificial love, with the ability to forgive those who don't deserve forgiving, that you empower us, Lord, to forgive in that way, to reconcile those you've asked us to reconcile with, to live in peace with our neighbors, and more importantly, Lord, to live in love with our brothers and sisters, even when we don't like them. We just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like prayer because you have a need in your life or you want to share something that's happening, we would love to pray with you. We'd love to bless you. We'd love to just speak over you. So you're welcome to come up after service. Thank you very much.